We're going to look at belief here today in John chapter 11. If any of you thought at any point this week, have you thought about dying? Every man, every woman, every child, you know, we're, we're dying, all of us. Well, whatever differences may exist among us, the one thing we share in common is with one another is that we're all dying. And maybe you're saying, thanks, Jeff. Appreciate that encouraging word this morning. Sure, I'm glad I got here on time. I know it sounds a bit grim and, and depressing, but the fact remains we are all dying. And in time, sooner or later, assuming Jesus doesn't come back for us, we'll be dead. And, and our time on earth is evaporating. And one of the most unsettling aspects of death, I believe, is, is that no man has control over it. Just as no man has authority to restrain the wind, so also no man has authority over the day of death, Ecclesiastes 8.8 says. But the incredible truth is that death does not have to be the end of all of man's hopes and dreams. For believers, we, we should look at what is next with anticipation instead of anxious fear, because Jesus Christ has conquered death. This morning, we're, we're going to look at one of the most talked about passages in all the Bible. And we're going to go and, and, and read this and, and try to place ourselves into the grieving process of death with two sisters who've lost their brother. So if you haven't already, turn to John chapter 11 and join me in prayer. Father, we come before your throne this morning pleading that you would show us your truth as we look at this passage before us. Father, we recognize we bring struggles and, and pain and, and hurt this morning. We bring it before you. We know that you care for us and that you love us. Remind us again through the preaching of your word that you come to the brokenhearted. Father, help us this morning as you challenge us through your word. May we be refreshed by the power of your word and challenged to grow in confidence of your power, to grow in our, our understanding of you, our theology and trust of you. Father, bring to our minds the truth that, that you love us, that you gave your son for us, that may cause us to serve you with our life. We thank you, Father, for the privilege that we have to come and worship with your people here this morning. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning I have three points that I want to cover in verses 17 through 37, that Jesus comes, that Jesus challenges, and that Jesus loves. As you, as you come to verse 17, you recognize there's a story that's happened already. We covered that a few weeks ago, and I want to bring you up to speed if you weren't here. You know, after spending some time on the other side of the Jordan, Jesus responds to the request of Mary and Martha to come and teach and to show the glory of God, and to, expo and to expose what belief truly is. And it's under the, 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 the invitation of their brother who's dying. If you remember in the first 16 verses of you here, if you read through it, the disciples struggled with this decision. They, they weren't in favor of what Jesus was proposing. For them, they, they were fearful of what the Jews might do to them if they were come back to Bethany. Uh, they, he had been threatened already, and so they didn't want to go back. In fact, they were pleased in where they were in chapter 10, verse 42, because it says that many had believed in him there. So why leave a, a flourishing ministry to go back with the possibility of dying? And they're, they're struggling with this. And, and, and God is now redirecting Jesus' ministry along with the disciples back to the place where they just left. 
So as the, as the disciples share their fears with their teacher, he responds by directing their attention back to the fact that their ministry is not done. It's not done until God says it's done. And so there's no need to worry for their lives. He's saying to them, literally, you are immortal until your ministry is done. No one can take your life until God says you're done. And Jesus then uses a picture language that, could, that they could walk safely because it's, it's daylight, but, but night was coming. And he reminded them that he was going to awake Lazarus, which even confused them even more because they thought, well, he just must be sick or he's just sleeping and recovering. And Jesus then plainly says to them, no, Lazarus is dead, and I'm happy for your sake that we could go back so that you may believe, that you would understand. Jesus in this, this chapter is not only ministering to the disciples and, and the sisters, but he's teaching. He's, he's laying a foundation of faith that they will need. And so we come to verse 17, and John writes, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead, had already been in the tomb for four days. Uh, the, the, uh, Lazarus had already been dead before the messenger even got to Jesus. And so he was laid in the tomb. And Jesus' disciples reached the town of Bethany, but, but he doesn't enter. Instead, we read in verse 20, when, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. If you remember anything from the Gospels and reading about Martha, she's, this is her personality. This is who she is, you know. She loved to serve and she loved to keep going. So I can almost imagine in this, in this instance is that word has now reached Martha and she's probably in the kitchen busy preparing food and, and drops whatever she's doing because she's heard that Jesus is coming and she's gonna race out and meet him before he even gets there. And there's really no response from her and it's not stated that she doesn't even, Mary doesn't even know. Mary's in the midst of, of probably the, the main thrall of all of the mourners, and she's busy grieving her brother. A number of commentaries point to the fact that Lazarus was well known, and so it seemed appropriate that there's a lot of people surrounding the family now, mourning and grieving his death. And in this culture, all of life's activity would have stopped. It would have ended at this point. And one commentary in particular said that this mourning process would most likely last 30 days. Work stops. School stops. Everything stops for the family as they, as they grieve. One commentary writing about the process during that time said the, the custom was for the bereaved to remain seated in the house and for the guests to come and sit in silence and periodically support the grieving parties with sympathetic tears and moans. The process in this culture is not, is not a silent mourning. It, it was most likely loud with, with moaning and, and wailing and crying. In fact, if you were really wealthy, you could hire professional mourners. The, your job was to come and to, and to join into this group. We're, we're not sure if that's the case with Mary and Martha, but we do know from the text, that she's surrounded by those expressing grief. And in the midst of the grieving, in the midst of the, of the hurt, Jesus comes. So point number one, Jesus comes. Number two, this is Jesus challenges. And, and a little more lengthy here in verses 21 through 27. Martha reaches Jesus in verse 21, and, and she begins. And she says, Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, 
my brother would not have died. And she doesn't waste any time unburdening herself before her Lord. And she knows a lot about Jesus, and she's, she's seen a lot of his ministry. And we know from, from this verse, in verse 32, that this thought of Jesus making it to Lazarus before death would have resulted in him being alive. I said a few weeks ago in the first sermon in this, that, that we, we live and we function in our calendars. We're, we're used to that in our lives. And so when we come to God, we usually come in that restriction of time. And for the sisters, if, if Jesus had made it there on time, their brother might not have lived. But remember, God doesn't have to function in our time. He doesn't, he doesn't abide by our calendars. He's above it. He's not restricted by our clocks. So they, they cry out, and Martha does it. Lord, if you had been here, and you really can't blame her reasoning, right, from a human side, because life has taught them that when death comes, it's final. She understands the power of Jesus. She understands that she's seen it, but she's looking through the eyes of a mere human who's grieving. And she adds something unique here of her belief in verse 22. She says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Martha's faith is on display in the last thread of hope that she has is, is that now Jesus can ask God to do something. You know, I thought as I, as I read through this, I wonder if the messenger who they sent to Jesus and who was there when Jesus talks about Lazarus, and if you remember in verse four, he says to, to the group, this illness does not lead to death, but it's for the glory of God. And I wonder if that messenger heard that and came back and was, was explaining this to the sisters. And so you, you almost hear that in her voice that she's asking. She must have recalled seeing the power of God working through, through Jesus and working in his ministry and wondering, oh, you could maybe do something. You could ask God to do something. You know, what about Martha's statement? Whatever you ask from God, God will give you. One thing for sure, and we see this pattern in the scripture it's not, she's not saying God is our magic eight ball. We can ask for what we want. He's not just our genie that whatever wish we have, we just go to him and he'll give to us. That's not what she's saying at all. She understands the role of, of Jesus in relation to his father. But even in her simple statement, she's limiting Jesus's power in and of himself. You know, the term she has of asking God is, is very appropriate for us as humans as we go before God, but not for God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. She had more to learn, like us. So he begins to challenge her and what she understands. First, he challenges Martha's thoughts in verse 23. She says, or he responds to her in her, in her question. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, what is he doing here? Well, I believe he's taking the playbook and saying, here you go. You can read it. This is what's gonna happen. He shows her what is about to happen next for her, for her, her brother. And Jesus knows her heart at this very moment, and he, and he opens her eyes to see past the physical realities of this world. He's seeking to grow her faith. And Jesus is more than a prophet. He's, he's, he's more than just a friend. He's not just a man. No, he's God. And he has power to bring life. Jesus is seeking to draw out Martha's faith 
but he's doing it slowly. D.A. Carson, writing about this, calls this a masterpiece of planned ambiguity. Her thoughts are focused on the reasonableness in regards to Jesus' power. And grief and pain have this, has this strong influence in our souls. Death, death was never part of the plan. So when it happens in our world, when it happens in our, in our families, in our life, we begin to lose sight of what we know to be true. We need handles of faith to grip onto. We, folks, we will lose more in this world. Our hope is not here, though. Our faith should never be solidified in this present world. Our faith should be solidified in the one who's conquered death. Jesus continues to challenge, and he's challenging Martha's theology in verses 24 and 25. Jesus is God, and so he's able to discern what, what, what she's thinking. He's able to discern what we're thinking. He knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts. He knows our motives. And so Jesus has come in this situation, in this, in this conversation, to shake her out of her beliefs even. And the point is to, to firm that, you know, when he comes to our life and in these questions to, to shake us of our rigid beliefs about religion, about the church, you know, is it just a system that we're, we're saying we're part of? Do we, do we come to church to just get approval? Do we believe in Jesus because that's what the text says in a sterile way? So I guess I need to follow everyone else and believe? Martha responds to his question. She says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Well, what she says isn't wrong. She's correct. She's a good student in her Old Testament prophecy. She knows what was to happen? The resurrection of the body was taught throughout the Old Testament and further affirmed by the Pharisees, and Jesus even taught it. So she knew, she had learned that God would raise him in the end. And, and she had faith, strong faith, that Jesus could raise her brother in the future. She just didn't think that it could happen immediately. She had general faith, something that we can understand and applaud, but she, she stays away from really showing her heart or what her heart's desires are at, hoping that he would be raised now. She's timid. And it's also unclear uh, whether her head knowledge about God's power was translating to her heart. And her response, I know, shows that she has the intellectual ability to understand truth and remember it, but has it made, has it made its way from the head to the heart? And, and I can picture Jesus standing there looking intently at Martha with, with compassionate and caring and patient eyes and, and reaching out to her because he's going to explain something to her. You can almost imagine from the outside watching this as he's gently wanting to, to show her now where her faith needs to be. He's about to say something to her that's going to completely rock her world. And he, Jesus said to her, he says, I... I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And in that, Jesus is challenging her to believe in a person, not a system. He says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. 
not your theology, not your thoughts, not your best work, not your procedures. It's me. I am the resurrection and the life. And note the order here. He is the resurrection and then the life because resurrection power opens the gate to eternal life. You know, Martha is focused on the end. She knows her theology. She knows what has been taught to her. And the thought of her brother coming back now is just too far-fetched for her. And Jesus, her teacher, is dismantling that thought. He wants her to see where real life is. If you're here this morning and you have been living and looking and striving for life in any other place than Jesus, you've been wrong. You've been lied to. You've been deceived. Real life is only found in Jesus Christ. John 3, 15 and 16, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3, 36, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John 4, 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. John 5, 39 and 40, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 10, 10 and 11, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John 14, 6, Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this that someone laid down his life for his friends. Real life is not found outside of Jesus Christ. Any life outside of Jesus brings forth real death. And Jesus continues to challenge, and he challenges her trust. He says in verse 26, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You know, these two statements of verse 25 and 26, they're not redundant, but they teach two separate yet connected truths. The one who believes in Jesus will live even if he physically dies. Because as Martha said earlier, God will raise him up on the last day. But as everyone who lives and believes in Jesus has eternal life, they will never die spiritually since eternal life cannot be removed by physical death. Even physical death fails to quench the believer's real life. And as believers, we can confidently say, oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? You know, there are those that believe that when this life is over, you cease to exist. That you fade away into some nothingness and you're forgotten. 
But the Bible says something very different than that. When you die, you go to two places. In the presence of God, forever. Or away from God, forever. There are no other choices. You either believe and trust in Jesus, or you don't. And so at the end of this, of this verse, in verse 26, Jesus asks a question. He says to Martha, do you believe this? Jesus was not asking Martha if she believed that he was about to raise her brother from the dead, but her Lord was calling her to personally believe that he alone was the source of the resurrection. That he was alone a source of, of life. He doesn't say that there, there is a resurrection, there is life. He says, I am the resurrection. I am life. So Jesus is asking Martha personally, and he's asking us this morning, do you believe this? Believe what? This, that Jesus is life. You know, Jesus isn't asking if Martha believes he's about to raise her brother from the dead. He's asking if her faith can go beyond believing that her brother will be raised in the last day of resurrection to personal trust in Jesus himself as the resurrection and the life. As I said, everyone that sits here this morning has two choices. You either trust Christ for salvation or you trust something else. There's no third choice. There's no makeup test at the end of life because you realize you're wrong. And so I wouldn't be a very good preacher and I wouldn't be a very good pastor if I didn't ask this question again. Do you believe this? Are you trusting in Christ? And don't be fooled in the context of what he's saying here. It's not whether you believe in the future resurrection or not. Believing in the resurrection has no effect on whether it's true. There will be a resurrection whether you believe it or not. Resurrection is not a matter of choice. Resurrection is neither created nor destroyed by your belief or disbelief. All will die and all will be raised, some to eternal life and some to eternal judgment. And Jesus says in John 5, 25 through 29, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to, to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So the only relevant question left is the same one that Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe this? And, and to believe this is to believe what he says of himself, thus believe in him. It is one thing to hear, to reason, and to argue about it, and quite another thing to believe, to embrace it, to trust it. To believe is to receive and hold and enjoy the reality and power of it. Today is the day of salvation. And poor Martha here, when pressed with this mighty question, points back to the same answer she gave before. She said to him, yes, Lord, 
I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. In our, in our English Bibles, do not give the full weight of what Martha's saying. Rather, it would literally be, I have believed and I do believe. And with that, that statement, we see the hope of what Christ is going to do, what Christ is going to, to work in her life to grow her faith. Martha saw indeed, but through a glass darkly. She knew in part. She believed in Jesus, but her faith was mingled with much unbelief. We find so much in common with Martha. And, and soon we'll read about Mary also. You know, the Christian life isn't always a clear and concise, but it's, it's rather sometimes a strange mixture of grace and unbelief and weakness. And yet again, we're not encouraged to stay there. We're not encouraged to just live in our weakness, but we, we go to him. We, we grow in, in reading and understanding his word and practicing what it says. The other thing I noticed in, in Martha's response is it should serve as a warning to us who, who may be able to speak all the correct theological responses about Jesus, but have actually failed to bring those words together with their life. It's not enough to make statements about Jesus. It must be backed up with who we are, how we live. You know, theology is not the only test of a Christian commitment. Doxology is very important. Theology is a study of the nature of God, and it's very important for the Christian life. Doxology is an expression of praise and worship to God. Doxology isn't the only thing that happens here, although, right, we, we sing songs, we, we praise God, but it's also how we live. And the point here is that all theology should ultimately lead us to a proper doxology. If your theology doesn't lead to doxology, then you've missed the point of theology. You may have theology, but without doxology means which you just have a cold and dead and lifeless orthodoxy, and that's not good. Maybe there are some that say, meh, forget theology. I just want to sing. I just want to live my own Christian life on my own. But if your doxology is void of any theology, you actually have idolatry, which is horrible. Because it's just odd and random. It's display of what you deem is important. And it's not informed and directed by the truth of God's word. God is concerned with both. He's very concerned with an accurate understanding of himself and then what we have of an accurate understanding will lead to a proper response in our worship and in our lives. So Jesus is challenging our way of thinking. He's challenging our, our, our comfy thoughts about God. So we've seen that Jesus has come and Jesus challenges third, Jesus loves and we sang about that this morning, the love of God, right? And can it be? You know, the, the love of God is an astounding thought. God knows us intimately. He knows our, our every passing and dwelling thought. He knows our loves. He knows our hates. He knows what drives us, what stops us. He knows when we sin. And through it all, he loves us. You know, the next 10 verses, we see clearly the compassion of our Savior as he sees the plight of sin. 
and its effect on those that he loves. And in verse 28, when it says, when, when she had said this, Martha, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher here is calling for you. And when she heard it, Mary, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So after Martha finishes the discussion with Jesus, she's, she's sent back by Jesus to get her sister. And the text says that she does so privately or, or secretly. Its possible reason is that the, the fear of the Jews that might be there. When Mary hears that Jesus is calling for her, her response is, is quick. She, she rises from the floor, most likely, probably prostrate at this point, mourning her, her brother. And her quick flight from the house aroused the attention of the group that is there mourning with her. And they decide to follow because the only logical place that she would go is the tomb to mourn, as was customary at that time. I can only imagine the picture of Mary racing to find her Savior. Running as fast as she can, with tears still welling up and her face is just covered because she's been crying. Any energy she has is she's now thrusted towards to find her Savior as quickly as possible with the flock of mourners behind and her sister beside her. What about the mourners? Are they just innocent bystanders that just happen to be there with no purpose in the story? You know, I'm sure that there, there's, there's mourners there that, that knew of Lazarus or knew of the sisters, but they really don't have any idea of who these sisters are, of, of their, their deep, faith in Jesus. They probably didn't know anything about their faith or their hope or their love for Jesus or the discipleship that's happened. They're there to give support, to grieve with them. And by doing this, they were about to witness something of great wonder and magnitude. They would be eyewitnesses to Lazarus walking out of the tomb. And to many of them, I would suspect this would be the day of their salvation. The raising of Lazarus led to a resurrection of their souls. I'm not going to get into this this week, but I'm excited for next week. Because it's a phenomenal story. Lazarus, who's been in the tomb for four days at this point, folks, his, his body doesn't smell good. They, they didn't embalm like they, they do now. A man who's, who's dead really dead. And, and these, these folks will surround the tomb curious of what Jesus is going to do. You know, it seems how small for these mourners to be there and yet how significant in God's providence that they are there. I thought also this week, we need to be reminded, I need to be reminded in our culture today that it's good to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. It's good for us as a church to mourn with one another. And I don't know about you, but I don't enjoy going to funerals. I don't look at it as if 
as such an enjoyable thing, but I go because of the person I'm going to support. And we as a church need to be about that. When someone's struggling and mourning, they have a loss, we need as a church to come alongside them, to mourn with them. You know, it's, it's, it's my job, and I, and I know that, and I, I appreciate that. As a pastor, I want to shepherd people and us elders. But as a church, we should be about this. We should learn something from these mourners that are giving up in themselves to be with someone else in the midst of their difficulty. Well, now Mary makes her way to see Jesus, and the first thing she does here is she falls to her feet. And she responds, if only, if only you had been here, my Lord, he would not have died. My brother wouldn't have died. And she repeats the same exact words that her sister does, which leads me to believe that they were thinking of us a whole lot. Where's Jesus? Why isn't he here? Lazarus is going to die. If only he comes back, if only he gets here in time, he could live. And one thing, another, another thing that I noticed is the differences of personalities between Martha and Mary. The two sisters are very different. Martha, Martha comes across in, in, in this story and throughout as, as kind of a stout, rigid person in her actions. But Mary, Mary's different. She's, she's softer and and, and more feeble in character, and she falls to the feet of Jesus. She is displaying in full before her Savior the grief that has been brewing in her heart for days. She's lost her brother. She lost her friend. And she's now pleading with her Savior for, for comfort. How does Jesus respond? He loves Verse 33, and when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And as we approach the climax of the story, we read you know, that Mary is pouring out her emotions in front of Jesus. And he asked, where is the body? Where is Lazarus? And they're on their way. And then verse 35, Jesus wept. Just two simple words. And yet they carry a world of significance. John 11.35 is the shortest verse in all the Bible. But one of the most powerful and insightful. Here we find a remarkable glimpse into the glory of our Lord of the universe. And at the beginning of the chapter 11, in verse 5, we, we, we read that Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And then very, later in verse 36, the response of the crowd is the same. See how he loved him. Jesus wept not because he lacked faith. He knew what would happen. He wept because he was full of love. He is love. In love, he weeps with those who weep. 
Isaiah says, he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He's a man of sorrows, but not his own. Because his love is great, he made our pains his own. But Jesus' tears are not only from love, he has a righteous anger at death and unbelief. John says that he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Literally, this reads that he is outraged and unsettled. He is indignant and disturbed. And you see his passion. He's greatly troubled, he says. He's he's shaken up and unsettled. As he stands face to face with death, he knows what it will take to conquer this foe. This time in this story, he will go and raise Lazarus from death, from the jaws of death. But the next time, he will lay down his own life. Jesus' weeping comes not from despair and resignation. These are not tears of one who's saying he is powerless and ready to give up. No, rather, these are tears of mingled affection and anger leading to action. He will raise Lazarus. But I believe Jesus is weeping over sin. I believe he is weeping because of the sin of this world. He was weeping because he saw what this ugly, horrid thing called sin had done to life. What it had introduced to the human experience. Jesus weeps because the people will not weep over their own sin. We should weep over sin. Why? Because as a Christian, you understand exactly what sin cost. You weep because the holiness of God is assaulted by the sin that offends his nature. You weep because the righteousness of God is wiped away by the sinful actions of the world in which we live. You weep because the greatness and power of God is not admired and not praised. You weep because the truth of God is not sought and the wisdom of God is forgotten and not held high. You weep because you realize that each and every one of your sins was heaped on the back of Jesus when he died on the cross. You weep because your sin pounded the nails into his hands because our sins pressed down the crown of thorns into his head and it resulted in his personal experience of hell when he was separated from the Father because of the payment of our sins on the cross. Jesus wept. And through his tears, we can see that our God does not stand completely aloof from our lives or the pain in our life. He is there. He has taken our flesh and our blood. He has not called us to do anything that he was unwilling to do himself. We are not dropped into a world that he is unwilling to enter. We will suffer no pain that he was unwilling to endure himself. We have no grief that he was unwilling to carry. Jesus wept. He did not think of himself to be above agonies, but emptied himself of the deserved privilege by taking the form of a bondservant, 
And the heart of the Christian message is that a happy God so loved our weeping world that he gave us his very own son to weep with us, to live with us, to show us what life truly is, and then to die for us. And one day we're promised that he will wipe away every tear. The one who wipes away every tear shed his own for us. And he has triumphed over death. This is gospel truth in two words. Jesus wept. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the reminder again this morning of your faithfulness in our lives. That you have not left us to live this life on our own. You came and you challenge us in your word. I pray, Father, that you will help us not to become too comfortable in this world. I pray that you will help us to grow and become more like Jesus. I thank you for the the example we see in Scripture of Jesus' love for us, his care and compassion for us. And Father, I pray for those here this morning that are not trusting you. They've been looking for life in every other direction, looking for joy and happiness. They ignore you. I pray that you would draw them into yourself, that they would see that real life is through Jesus Christ. I pray for those here that are believers but haven't been growing, haven't been walking with you faithfully, haven't been reading your word, haven't been attending church but are here this morning. I pray that you would encourage them. I pray that you would send someone into their lives that that is walking faithfully with you to help them, to disciple them, to, to walk with them. I pray that they would confess their negligence to you and look to serve you with all that they have. I pray for those here this morning that are struggling or hurting. Something has been taken away, the pains of life. I pray that they would see where their hope lies in you. They would recognize that. I pray that this passage, this chapter, would be an encouragement to them. I pray, Father, that we as a church family, as a body, would look to serve you and those that are struggling in this world. That even though it's hard and uncomfortable sometimes that we would seek to be around those that are hurting and struggling, that we'd be able to give them hope from your word. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. 
To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.